All right, so bonus round. Let's talk about collectible card games. The, the thing you you really got going, you know, twenty five years ago. That's kind. Of, does that seem crazy to you that Magic was like twenty five ish years ago? Uh, yeah, it does seem crazy ish. <laughs> uh, it does seem crazy, um, and it uh, it's been all, I think exactly twenty five years now since it was released. Um, yeah, uh, games have come a long way since then. Yeah. All right. So let's let's get your advice. I mean, you've been doing this a long time. You've worked on I don't know how many sets of magic. I know you're not you're not in on all of them at this point, but you still come along and kind of consult and help out and do different things. So tell me, give me some good advice. If let's say I wanted to come up with a collectible card game, or I guess living card game is kind of the model people are using now, and so maybe that's a better way to go. But what would be your advice to somebody working on one of those kinds of games? I've got lots of different go-to uh, concepts for uh, putting these things together. Um, the first, uh, which I learned uh, maybe on my third game, no, my second game, uh, Vampire of the Eternal Struggle, I, I learned, um, is that you want to make them short. When Magic came, first came out, I was actually pretty lucky that I made it as short as it is uh, because my standards at the time was this is a board or card game. Boards and card games that I'm used to playing are 45 minutes minimum, and two hours is certainly okay. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out, and this is uh, pretty obvious now, is that, uh, is that these trading card games uh, really want to be short. And the reason why is because you want to play them once, and then you want to change your deck and then play them again. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you make it so that the length of the game is one sitting, you're not gonna be able to do that in one sitting. Um, but if you make it so that the uh, length of play is 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, uh, then then you'll be able to play it and say, oh, I wonder well, how, how this would have worked if I swapped out this card. That's very satisfying for players and it's a, it's a, a, a large part of the reason why people play doesn't mean that a longer one can't work. It just means that it's going to be much, uh, it's going to uh, be harder for people to get into and require a lot more of their time. Yeah, it seems like deck building, I know from my experience back in college, deck building was so much of the fun is, is finding these cards and, and putting them together and figuring out cool ways for them to work. And then so playing a game against my buddy wasn't even necessarily like, oh, I need to win. It was like, OK, I'm going to play test this deck and see if it's as good as I hope it will be and I can tweak it. Is that what you've kind of found early on with the playtesters way back when? And you just kind of kept that going? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. A, a lot of how it is. And in fact, uh, some players, I think many players even uh, – uh, aren't even using the decks as a stepping stone to a winning deck. What they're doing is they've got some deck concept and they're happy if they win, you know, one in five games. Uh, they feel very good about that. Um, and uh, uh, so it's sort of a game world to explore. In fact, their attitudes uh, often allow for some really interesting things where uh, they intentionally play these things, whether the underdog and the other person has a much stronger deck or stronger players. Um, that uh, it, it feels it's it's uh, pretty cool having a game where one person has a 20 percent chance to win. And uh, it feels very special when they do win. And, uh, you know, the other person gets to dominate them uh, four times out of five. Um <laughs> So uh, that can be a win-win situation. So the uh, 
the other thing I look for when I'm uh, making a, a trading card game is it's very important what the elements of the cards are. You want to make it so that uh, players uh, want to collect that element. Um, so that is why a game with a bunch of creatures uh, or a bunch of objects or a bunch of places is more interesting than is, is, is probably going to be more successful than a game where you've got a bunch of uh, moves like left punch, right punch. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these uh, more abstract things don't translate as well into cards, which don't make because they're not as and, and they're not as tangible. So uh, it uh, I think is, uh, is, is stronger to have uh, uh, people putting together decks of things they find cool. Yeah, definitely. Now, what were some of the rules that maybe weren't in the original concept of the game that as more people got their hands on it and started to kind of break things and do things differently, what were some of those things that, that you learned there? For instance, like having limits on the number of the of, of a card, a specific card that someone could have in their deck. Was that there from the beginning or is that something you kind of had to do later? And what were some other things like that? Uh, the limit on the number of cards was added later. Um, and in fact, uh, originally the way I anticipated trading card games being played was that people would buy uh, one or two decks and some boosters. And, uh, and that was the end of it. They traded. <laughs> that was it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so there wasn't any need for any uh, limit. And to boot, uh, uh, I thought that if somebody traded and made it a deck, made a deck, for instance, of all lightning bolts and mountains, whether or not that was a dominating deck, it's pretty good, yeah. um, and but it's not fun to play against. Right. And so, you know, that would be like uh, if, if if I went to somebody's house and they played a game with a with a, 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 a power that was you know too broken, we'd say, okay, you can't play that anymore. And so, uh, I expected people to do more self moderation. Hmm. But uh, I came from an era where there were a lot of house rules in our games. And, uh, and but as the game became played more seriously and people had larger collections, we had to uh, take this balancing more more seriously. And uh, this rule of uh, a limit of four uh, in the deck really helped a lot. Later on in Netrunner, in fact, I tried to get rid of that, and I, I tried to design it from the get go so that you could have as many as you liked of a particular card. And uh, people did not like that, even if it was possible. And it took me a little while to get it through my head that, that, that it just really helped people by giving them bounds, like that they, uh, that they didn't have to worry whether they needed six of these things or seven or 20 of them, uh, that having a limit of three or four is, is very helpful to the players. So that's another reason to put these limits in. Gotcha. So giving players constraints actually helps the game uh, – actually helps people enjoy the game more. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, makes it seem less overwhelming. And, and I mean, trading card games are cr crazy overwhelming to begin with. So if you can give them uh, some walls, uh, it, it's often useful. So another uh, thing I would advise for somebody making a trading card game is to try to aim for cards and strategies – that are loved and hated uh, as opposed to ones that everybody thinks are just okay. Mm -hmm. There was a, a lot of pressure at the beginning to make it so that magic, there were some groups who felt like magic should be uh, creatures with spells as spice. 
and they didn't like to see Landestruck. They didn't like to see card discard. They didn't want to see uh, uh, decks that were almost all spells. And uh, I found that the that the that anything which anybody hated, uh, if there were people out there that loved it, that it was uh, it it just made the game much richer by putting it in there, but making sure that it didn't uh, you know it didn't become so common that people had to deal with it all the time. Yeah. So if it's out there, the people who hate it. It's sort of this dangerous spice that's out there that occasionally they have to play this game they hate. But for the people who love it, it's like the entire game. They love it. Yeah, so you're saying have some polarizing strategies. Yep, yep, yep. Have polarizing strategies. Just make sure that the ones that are, uh, are, are super hated don't dominate. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then, and then uh, that's much more exciting, I think, than just stripping everything out so that everybody so that it's more the whole the entire game's more vanilla gotcha all right one one last question before some final thoughts how do you play test one of these things like what have you learned about play testing over the last 25 years for a game like this well uh you you need a broad uh, a broad group of play testers uh there's no one answer and uh you need to make sure that some some of the play testers are represent all the different uh, psychographics. So you need some people who are taking winning very seriously and you need to have, have it so that uh, some people who are playing for big swingy effects or combos are, are playing that don't care necessarily as much about winning and that you have uh, both good players and bad players, or I should say experienced and inexperienced. And that's, that's daunting, but, uh, but it's really important to get these things broadly play and tested. Um, the second thing is that it's really hard to catch everything. Um, and if I, I would go so far as to say that if you've caught all the problems with your game, you probably have not been ambitious enough. Hmm. Uh, games are very complicated. Games like these are very complicated. And part of the joy of them is exploring the wild unknowns of these games. So you want to make sure they're in the game. And uh, the combinatorial nature of it is such that, that you just can't get all the combos uh, uh, if, if you're aggressive with them. Um, and, and so uh, I would be easier on yourself and just have some method of uh, correcting mistakes after release. Uh, it's painful to do, but, but, um, but uh, I think... I think if a game launches a little more aggressively with the combos and some of them are a little broken, but you can tweak them back, that's going to be more satisfying than everything is sort of more reined in. And in fact, at one point at Wizards, we have uh, design teams and development teams. And the design teams come up with the design and the development teams uh, make sure that they're not too broken and balanced. Um, at one point, we were talking about how to uh, measure the design, the development team's success. And the obvious thing was no broken cards. The idea was put forth, and uh, I still subscribe to it, that uh, that actually the ideal thing is that there's a couple broken cards every year. Mm -hmm. um, if you have 10, you know, that's too much. But if you have none, that means they're just not trying. Hmm. Gotcha. Well, man, this, this has been awesome. Do you have any kind of like closing advice or you know closing thoughts for somebody working on a CCG? If you're working on a TCG, I would say uh, begin by nailing down your vanilla stuff. 
just uh, uh, in, in magic, that would be the very simple creatures with no abilities and uh, the very simple abilities. Uh, just get those down first before trying to do anything super fancy. And then once you've got that down and it feels like a, a, a pretty good uh, structure, then it's uh, really easy to add in cards that tweak those, uh, add to them, subtract from them, uh, and uh, spin the game off hopefully into uh, wild and unknown areas. Gotcha. Richard, man, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, good luck with everything you got going on right now. Hey, thanks for the interest. Uh, it was fun.